Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Genocide Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Jeff Bachman. Thank you all for listening. Today, we'll be talking to Judy Reaver about her book, In Praise of Blood, The Crimes of the Rwandan Patriotic Front, first published in 2018 by Random House Canada, with a paperback printing coming in February 2020, with some updated research. Based on my own concerns with the suppression of the UN mapping report, the lack of attention to and accountability for for crimes committed by the RPF during the genocide in Rwanda, and the near invisibility of the millions of people killed in the DRC, I was very interested in reading your book, Judy, though I must admit I was not fully prepared for what I would read. With that said, uh, Judy, welcome to the show. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself, like where you were born, where did you go to school, uh, and things of that nature. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Um, I uh, am a freelance journalist. I was born in Montreal. I grew up uh, south of the city in the countryside. And uh, I later went to university in Ontario, where I got a degree in biology. I was first interested in genetics. Then I changed paths and went into journalism I studied at Ryerson University in Toronto. In later years, I completed a Master of Fine Arts in Creative Writing at the University of British Columbia. It's a very interesting background. We'll get to, uh, in a moment, how you became interested in Rwanda. Um, but before doing so, um, you know, doing the investigative journalism that you did for this book um, you know, really requires some great commitment and perseverance, um, you know, mentally and physically, I'm sure. Uh, do you have any mentors, peers, or someone who's inspired your work? Well, the best course I, I ever took in journalism school was investigative journalism, and it was taught by an investigative journalist who worked for the Globe and Mail, Canada's uh, most uh, read newspaper. Um, and this person, uh, this investigative journalist was a mentor for me. He taught me how to examine powerful interests uh, that operated locally and globally. And he taught me, encouraged me and other students to look uh, uh, at uh, Western governments and whose interests were being served by decisions and, and why. Uh, so um, he primarily uh, or initially, and then I later worked with some senior journalists at CBC Television um, and, uh, I was working, I was doing research on documentaries and they reinforced this journalistic credo. Uh, and a number of them taught me one in particular who worked, uh, for the flagship investigative program, the fifth estate taught me how to document my interviews and stories in highly detailed ways, uh, create a chronology in order to fully understand events and people and, and, how to um, discover the inconsistencies and contradictions in chronology and and in accounts. And so he helped me uh, establish, or well, I watched how he created timelines and and how he uh, collected evidence in his interviews. And so all that taught me how to collate evidence, layer it, and uh, see how evidence stands in a court of law, because a lot of investigative journalists have to uh, vet their uh, work with lawyers. So these methods have guided uh, and informed my work ever since. And I was taught some of these things at, at, at a very young age. It's very interesting. Um, 
I, I've been reading uh, just on my side reading, um, you know, fictional work, some crime dramas, and it sounds like a lot of the same investigative techniques are used um, in, in crime investigations as you are for your journalism. Um, so with that, I mean, you're welcome to, to comment on that if there's anything you want to add, but I also want to then understand how you became interested in Rwanda and, and the Great Lakes region. Well, I always thought I would actually work on Latin America, but I ended up focusing on a different landscape entirely, which was Central Africa. Um, well, Africa in general. At first, I got a job at Radio France International in Paris, and editors uh, put me immediately on the Africa desk. And that opportunity provided me with an infinite amount of learning and challenges. So, And I never looked back after that. Um, it felt like it was the beginning of my education as a world citizen. And so I think um, once you start working on Africa, uh, uh, you know, in my case, anyhow, it, it just offers j- journalists like me who are interested in culture, human rights, history, and the relationship between the West and the global South, it offers those journalists, the ultimate landscape. So that's how I I really um, got into uh, working on Africa. So um, moving into the book from there, um, you know, there are two intertwined stories in your book, uh, one being your research into the impact of the violence on people in Rwanda and the DRC and the crimes committed by the RPF and RPA, and the other being how conducting this research impacted your life. I would like to begin with the former, but would be remiss if we didn't take some time to discuss the dangers you faced and the courage it took to ultimately bring uh, your research to the public. Uh, so going back to the, the previous question about how you became interested in Africa um, and the Great Lakes region, how did you come to write this book? What motivated this particular study? Well, the book is uh, like a 20-year journey uh, of how you know how uh, long it took me to research and, and, and examine RPF crimes. Uh, so it was uh, a quest. Um, you know, I was I needed to understand the violence and the suffering I I saw in Congo, and so uh, I was very interested in the Great Lakes region uh, already, uh, having. Um, read a lot about the genocide, the Rwandan genocide. Um, and after um, Rwanda invaded Zaire in, in 1996, uh, I was working for Radio France International, which sent me uh, to cover the toppling of Mobutu Sese Seko uh, and uh, to cover the humanitarian crisis. I'd never been to a conflict zone before, much less uh, a war zone. So I was very green in that respect, um, I'd been taught to tell big stories by relating individual stories. Um, so uh, I felt that the most compelling issue, as soon as I got there, uh, within days of Mobutu being toppled, was to examine the violence against Hutu refugees in the Congolese forests and, and the forced displacement of Congolese. So um, I, uh, I I wanted to understand how that violence, I quickly uh, started to ask myself some fundamental questions uh, when I got into the jungle and I started interviewing refugees. I don't know if you want to ask me a bit more about that. Sure. Um, What was that experience like? I actually have a former student um, who 
was doing some research into uh, the refugee camps and how they were used as places that where you know Hutu would congregate and then uh, would be infiltrated and you know and then violence would be uh, perpetrated there. Uh, what did you learn from visiting these refugee camps? Well, it uh, what I saw um, haunted me for years. Um, I uh, went in with local aid workers, Congolese aid workers. Uh, into um, areas of the jungle, principally south of Kisangani, which is in the northeast uh, of Congo. And uh, what we were looking for were um, surviving refugees, uh, refugees who had suffered um, atrocities um, and uh, were languishing in the jungle, but who had survived attacks by Kagame's army. And so um, I uh, was able to witness uh, uh, firsthand uh, the effects of uh, the, the, the massacres that had been perpetrated uh, against Hutu refugees by Kagame's Tutsi-led army. And I was able to see uh, some of the suffering from uh, months, uh, eight months of their trek uh, through the forest, um, being chased by Kagame's rebels, Kagame's army. But in particular, what emerged from those interviews, which haunted me for years, was the anecdotal evidence um, uh, which I gained from those interviews from the refugees themselves, um, who told me you know, I asked them in particular why they had fled Rwanda in the first place and why they stayed in Zaire after the genocide, after Kagame had seized power and was establishing security uh, post-genocide. And um, they were sh- they shared their stories with me about how they had, uh, anecdotally, how they had been attacked in Rwanda in 1994 and uh, how they were, you know, after the genocide, afraid to go back because they thought they would be killed and that many of uh, the people who had gone back, uh, I'm talking about Hutu refugees, uh, had disappeared. And so this was astonishing to me. I'd never heard these stories and there was a you know, a, quite frankly, a lacuna in studies about why Hutus had fled Zaire in the first place and why they never went back, why they were reluctant. And so there, there wasn't this documentation. And so the official narrative uh, did not make sense to me. And this is really the reason that I, I kept doing research. Thank you. Um, and in speaking with refugees do they, did any of them uh, tend to sort of point blame at any institutional failures for their protection? I mean, speaking of refugee camps, was this a United Nations failure? Was it a Congo failure, the international community? Did, was there any sense of, um, I don't know, feeling like they were you know, just left unprotected by the institutions that are supposed to protect refugees? Well, there was a major breach of trust um, uh, between for the refugees 
uh, by the United Nations and certainly in particular the UNHCR, um, which was highly politicized and was forcing uh, Hutu refugees to go back to a country uh, led by killers. And so this, this was what loomed large in their mind. Um, they did not want to go home. Um, and, uh, the, you know, the UNHCR was forcing, you know, men, women, and children onto planes or in trucks and sending these people who had survived uh, atrocious attacks in the Congolese jungle. And the UNHCR was telling them, you have to go back to Rwanda where it is safe. And so it was really, in many respects, a twilight zone um, because it made no sense. And it was clear that the UNHCR, in Hutu refugees' mind, did not have uh, their best interests in mind and uh, was not actually fulfilling their role, uh, their mandate in protecting refugees. So uh, that was uh, number one, I think. The number two, there was always uh, and there remains a lingering suspicion among Hutus um, in Rwanda and in exile. that the international community does not believe them uh, and uh, has, you know, believed the official narrative that in fact has demonized uh, Hutus as uh, an ethnic group. Uh, And so uh, the lack of justice at the International uh, Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda and the way in which Hutu refugees were treated in the Congo and left to the devices and to, uh, of of Kagame and his Western backers, I think that has contributed to um, great uh, disillusionment and, and suffering uh, among the refugees. You you mentioned uh, where you know the Hutus were located, um, you know, in the jungles, and it reminds me of a story very early, very early in your book. Um, I wonder if you might tell our audience uh, just a little bit about the sort of perilous pathways you had to um, travel in order to uh, speak with the refugees. The the story that I am recalling uh, from early in the book is uh, crossing a bridge uh, that had missing planks and there's a Jeep going across. Could you um, tell tell the audience a little bit about what you went through to conduct your research? Yes, that was um, an incredible experience. Uh, We had taken, uh, I had uh, started uh, some of these search and rescue missions with local aid workers from Red Cross, Médecins Sans Frontières, that's Doctors Without Borders, and um, a few other agencies. And we crossed the Congo River um, in Kisimgani and then headed uh, by uh, vehicles, SUVs, uh, four by fours, into the uh, south of Kisimgani uh, along a railway line. 
until we had to leave those trucks um, and uh, go on foot into the dense jungle. And at one point, we had to uh, continue our trek, and we were in contact uh, by walkie-talkies with other aid workers who were in uh, further uh, in the jungle searching for refugees who had found some survivors. And uh, at one point, we had to cross a dilapidated bridge, and it. Uh, we we could not cross it with the uh, with uh, the truck with the vehicle we were in. Um, this is actually obviously before we had uh, started walking, but uh, you know these people I were with they were used to going very deep into the forest and facing all these perils, which quite frankly, uh, were really scary for me. Uh, but they were, um, the driver was telling me, well, we have to get in and cross this bridge. And it was missing, you know, big chunks of its planks. And he said, there's no problem. We just take the planks that are there, they're movable, and we just keep moving them ahead. And then we go slowly across the bridge. And I said, there's no way I'm crossing the bridge. We're going to go down you know, the whole vehicle is going to fall into the ravine. And so I put up some, uh, you know, resistance and I said, there's absolutely no way. And uh, the local aid workers, uh, one in particular, who I called Niana, she worked, um, she helped me and we became very good friends. She said, uh, I'll go with you on foot along the side. And so we walked uh, very, um, you know, carefully um, uh, from my standpoint with great trepidation along the side, we crossed the, this bridge to get to, uh, the other side and, and get to where we needed to go, which was further down, um, the railway. But, you know, I watched, uh, behind me, this vehicle cross this bridge and it was extraordinary. And, and, uh, it symbolized to me, uh, how, uh, devastated already this country was uh, in terms of infrastructure, but how determined local Congolese were um, to do the jobs they had. Uh, They were so committed and also how you used, how um, they, they, they were just so used to dealing with adversity that it was something that was part of, of daily life. And so, uh, I think that's that's what I took away. But my whole trip seemed to be very physically, uh, emotionally, and psychologically demanding. Um, you know, I again, I was a Western reporter, used to um, a certain level of comfort and privilege, and uh, I was very young and had never been in a conflict zone before. I wanted to. Uh, get back to something you said earlier um, about there being a gap in the literature and the narrative. Um, and there's been numerous journalistic accounts as well as, you know, dozens and dozens of scholarly accounts and, and books and even more journal articles. Um, how would you compare your book 
uh, or situated with other journalistic accounts like Linda Melvern's book of the role of the West in Rwanda, Jean Hatzfeld on uh, interviews with um, killers and survivors, uh, Gorbich's work. Uh, I, asked, I asked this question in part, as I mentioned, because of, there's so much to consume about Rwanda. And then on top of that, there's documentaries like Ghosts of Rwanda and the Hollywood's telling of Hotel Rwanda, Samantha Powers, Pulitzer Prize winning book, A Problem <laughs> from Hell. Um, but even when these works, it seems to me, have been critical of the RPF for the West, none of them really tell the story like you do in A Praise of Blood. Uh, so where does your book sort of fit? Um, and maybe at this time, you could also summarize uh, for the audience um, what the popular narrative is narrative is on Rwanda and what your book, um, how your book challenges that. Well, I'll start with the last part of your question first, maybe. Um, the popular narrative or the official narrative uh, is that of the Rwandan genocide is that the Hutu government at the time and its hardliners conspired for years uh, to exterminate uh, uh, the minority Tutsi and that Hutu extremists around Habi Aramana lit the match uh, to carry out their genocidal plan, um, lit the match, uh, I mean, ignited the genocide by, by killing their own president. Uh, and that after that, Hutu citizens, peasants, uh, in a frenzy, zealously participated in killing their neighbors and obeyed orders. Um, so there was this narrative that of a popular genocide. Um, and um, so, in fact, um, my story and the, the complete story of the genocide uh, is is very much uh, different. And my story is polar opposite to some of the works that you mentioned earlier. Um, so just to get into um, that, or do you want me to talk about my story, uh, you know, what my narrative is, or would you like me to address uh, some of the other works that you've mentioned? Maybe uh, address some of the other works, and then that could lead you into uh, the the sort of retelling or the revised narrative. Well, my book is really kind of the polar opposite uh, of the works you've mentioned. Um, I would say that the uh, work of uh, Melvern and Gorovich, uh, Lena Melvern and Philip Gorovich, um, in particular, offer up the story of uh, the genocide as a Manichaean tale, um, and they uh, quite frankly take a, a page from the Rwandan Patriotic Front, the RPF rhetoric, and official statements about the genocide. Gorovich's work in particular has been very ideologically driven, and he's done uh, quite a job, uh, an astonishing job at demonizing Hutus stripping them of their essential humanity. Uh, Melvern, uh, Linda Melvern is a friend to one of the most violent regimes uh, in the world at the moment. Uh, In recent years, she's received a medal from Paul Kagame. She does one source stories. She, for example, she revealed um, the uh, so-called confession of Jean 
Kambanda, uh, who was the prime minister of the interim Hutu-led government during the genocide. And she, of course, um, brought that, uh, you know, uh, revealed this in her book uh, without pointing out, of course, the, the psychological distress and torture that uh, he that was exerted on him to deliver that confession and not pointing out that his deposition which contradicted his confession, was hidden by the tribunal. So I think the foundation of her work um, and that of others who have focused on the something called the Akazu theory and the genocide conspiracy has been slowly dismantled over the course of many years. And even people who have uh, worked at the office of the prosecutor of the ICTR, that's the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda, say there wasn't enough evidence to bolster the claims of, of the, the central tenets uh, of what she uh, and others have revealed, the Akazu theory and the genocide theory. Uh, the Akazu theory is that there was a group of, of hardliners around Habiaramana um, who uh, conspired um, for years uh, to uh, plan this genocide. And so uh, Malvern is in particular to this day very active in targeting anyone who critically examines the RPF record. And she'll um, uh, accuse people like myself of being a Hutu power supporter. So uh, there is that's how I see their work, uh, her work in particular. Samantha Power, well, she she's um, for years uh, sung the praises of Kagame. Actually, she's trumpeted claims that Kagame stopped the violence during the genocide and reconstructed Rwanda. Uh, she, uh, while working in the Obama administration, she uh, at the UN, she uh, became more critical about him holding on to power, but um, she largely uh, applauded his epic achievements. And so her main thesis is that, in her book, was that the U.S. knew that a genocide was underway but actively worked uh, at the U.N. to prevent intervention. That's correct. She's correct about that. But she doesn't point out, and so there's a a fair amount of obstacles in her work that that Kagame and his RPF threatened the United Nations uh, with violence if the UN peacekeeping force at the time, uh, if it did not withdraw its troops and get out of his way. So she should have written about what the United Nations and Washington knew uh, about what the RPF crime, about what the RPF was doing, what Kagame uh, was doing, the threats and about those crimes, because there, there was sufficient documentation of those crimes, and she would have gotten access to some of those archives. Uh, and just, you know, if we continue a little bit with some of the names that you mentioned, um, Jean Hatzfeld's work, um, which I no doubt think was sincere, um, I think... His attempts, you know, he sincerely tried to offer a detailed picture of, of uh, victims, Tutsi victims, but also Hutus, and he wanted to look at why people kill. I, but unfortunately, I think that he and maybe others who have tried to do that uh, embark 
on this kind of dubious experiment because interviewing Hutu prisoners uh, in Kagame's Rwanda uh, who are under duress um, is obviously, uh, you know, uh, almost an impossible task. Um, how can we put stock in, in testimonials from people who seek protection or try to avoid censor or violence or possibly try to derive benefit by uh, testimony that would bolster the RPF narrative. So doing interviews in that kind of Orwellian state um, is, is, creates a lot of problems. And I think that there's a major fault line of Scott Strauss's work as well. He's an academic. He, he wrote The Order of Genocide. Very interesting book, and I, I quote his work in, in my book. Um, but, um, it, it's, it's, it, I think, uh, there are a lot of problems with doing research in Rwanda and, and, and collecting testimony. So my work, uh, stepping away f- from that, my work acknowledges the genocide against Tutsis. I do this in every chapter. It's not an examination of the violence against Tutsis, but it's a look at what the RPF did before during and after the genocide, and how it, the RPF fueled the violence against Tutsis and committed genocide against Hutus. So what I try to show is that the, the, the violence, uh, the dynamic of that violence was very complex. With that, um, could you talk about the crimes that you believe Kagame and the RPF are responsible for during the time uh, leading up to during and post-genocide in Rwanda? Um, yes, I can. Um, really, the crimes before the genocide uh, by the RPF were s- serious violations of humanitarian law. And strictly speaking, um, they could be qualified as ethnic cleansing because uh, from 1990, after Kagame's army uh, invaded from its base in Rwanda, uh, they undertook a scorched earth campaign in uh, the north, uh, principally in a prefecture called Buyumba. And they did so for three years prior to the genocide. Um, And uh, during that time, they seized land and destroyed economic livelihood uh, for a million Rwandans who ended up being squeezed into horrific internally displacement camps, internal displacement camps. So the RPF killed Hutus in seizing their land. They destroyed crops, raped women, in some cases burned homes, and created, to some extent, a Tutsi land in the north. And by 1993, uh, Kagame's army was killing any Hutu on site, according to a former senior RPF military official and and founder, uh, uh, actually, uh, Alphonse Furuma. I, I quote him in my book. Um, but his, you know, his, it's not just what he says. This has been um, confirmed uh, by a number of other uh, of former RPF soldiers and officers, and also by Hutus who were uh, displaced and victimized in the north. So that's the concept context in which the genocide was unleashed, um, and that's in, uh, before the genocide. So. Um, then in April 1994, there's overwhelming evidence the RPF shot down the plane 
that carried the Hutu uh, president, and that was the the match that ignited the genocide. And and as soon as my book really, the core of my book is is really showing how uh, the RPF launched as soon as um, the president was assassinated. The RPF launched preemptive systematic attacks, not retaliatory, but preemptive. Uh, uh, you know, uh, attacks against Hutu civilians targeting, it, it, as of April 6th, targeting Hutu community leaders and then peasants in the north as they moved down the eastern flank of the country. Uh, I, I show how the RPF committed genocide by destroying, in part, the Hutu ethnic group. And as the genocide um, against Tutsis wore on, the RPF seized most of the countries. The RPF continued to kill Tutsis, uh, kill, kill Hutus uh, by their favorite tactic of luring these peasants to meetings and then killing them. And they intensified their um, extermination campaign by loading Hutus onto trucks and shipping them off to. Akagera Park, where they were burned and turned into ashes. And so I think, um, and these were men, women, and children. So um, that that's what happened in 1994. And after July 1994, the RPF continued to kill in more clandestine ways. They uh, arbitrarily rounded up Hutus, uh, calling them into Hamway, put them in jails, uh, and uh, handed... Um, you know, Tutsi civilians also uh, handed Hutus over, uh, assisting the RPF. Uh, Hutus were loaded onto trucks again and taken to parks. So, um, in as a whole, the Hutu ethnic group has been neutralized um, and has been partially uh, destroyed. But of course, when the Tutsis, the interior Tutsis, have uh, been uh, largely destroyed as well, and and they were have been marginalized uh, and suffered in in this campaign. To put the story together, you had you know numerous sources of information uh, from informants and dissenters to people working in state government, you know, uh, at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. Uh, how did you build trust with these individuals? How did they learn to trust you? How did you corroborate the information they provided? Well, investigative journalism takes time. Uh, I developed, uh, it took years, I developed trust slowly and painstakingly uh, among uh, Rwandan people. Uh, Congolese and uh, initially Rwandan Hutus in in Congo, but then over the years, uh, Rwandan people in exile. So, um, it's their voices, I, I, I believe, needed to be listened to. Um, you know, Hutus in particular have been gaslighted by Kagame's regime and to some extent by the international community. Um, so you build trust one person at a time. Um, and I was looking, obviously, for direct uh, witnesses to crimes, people who had seen or been victimized themselves and contextual witnesses. Um, and I would, you know, find people, uh, spend hours and hours with them over a period of weeks and uh, go back to them. And then they would suggest others, quite frankly. Um, and so uh, sometimes I'd cold call people. Uh, for a while, I had a website where I posted interviews and articles and 
people contacted me out of the blue. But essentially, I began to get a reputation uh, for being somebody people could trust. I would keep their stories. Um, I wouldn't expose uh, who they were. Uh, I uh, eventually, many people realized they their stories. Um, were safe with me, that I, I found a way to amplify their voices without uh, identifying who they were because they they were scared of being targeted even if they were living, for example, in Uganda, in Nakai Valley, in the uh, refugee camps that are still there in Uganda, or even living in Belgium or, or in Canada. Um, so there, there was this uh, dynamic uh, and that took me many years to establish, but uh, I think ultimately it, it, um, it worked. And there was also, I mean, you, you mentioned the tribunal. Yes, I had to establish uh, contacts with people who had worked there. That took me a long time. People like people who were uh, investigators there. And I also contacted many lawyers, uh, not only defense, but uh, people who worked for the office of the prosecutor. And I think there's this, you know, huge dark cloud that lo- that looms over the tribunal to this day. Uh, you know, the tribunal wrapped up a few years ago, and now there's something called the residual mechanism that's just conti- finishing up a few cases. But there's a long shadow over their careers and their conscience. And I think that m- many people, they might have been reluctant at first, but but they wanted to talk. Those who had asked critical questions about the court's dysfunction and the court's the, the infiltration of the court by the Rwandan regime, the manipulation of witnesses, the false leads, the buried reports. So there's this kind of tremendous sense of adjustment and frustration um, there at how Kagame and Washington influenced the outcome of the ICTR. Um, so that that was part of it, but the real, I think, success um, of my work or where I managed to break through, if you will, was when I was able to access um, former officers and uh, soldiers who had fled Kagame's regime. Uh, they're the ones who um, brought me in and and showed me what the violence was really like. Um, and um, I think Kagame has miscalculated the shame and the rage among some of these people who fled as soon as they could and had been forced to engage in crimes or witness these mass murders. And so there's that aspect. There's this kind of overlapping testimony that, um, that you know, the, from the initial... Uh, accounts from Hutu victims uh, to some of the uh, reports that were leaked to me by the International Criminal Tribunal um, and some of the interviews with the investigators I did, which confirmed what many of the Hutus had said. And then finally, these former officers who then managed to say, yes, this is what happened, but gave me so much more detail than those first two uh, sources. So um, th- this was kind of, uh, it was extraordinary and at the same time, you know, it validated 
the experience of, of, of victims, I think. Did you gain any insights from your research, uh, especially with your interactions with officials at the ICTR, uh, for how uh, Kagame and, and others in the RPF have been able to escape accountability or how they've basically been able to operate with impunity? Well, it was a pretty difficult um, political and, you know, political context, but also a security context that uh, the uh, tribunal operated. So, okay, how was the evidence ignored? Um, there was a lot of evidence against Kagame, uh, but it was uh, willfully ignored by senior officials of the United Nations and the U.S. So there was a cover-up. Uh, just to give you an idea of the extent of that cover-up, during the genocide in May, there were uh, bodies floating in Akagera River uh, in eastern Rwanda. These were recorded, they were filmed, and aired around the world as proof that a genocide against Tutsis was occurring or had occurred. And there were bodies dumped in that river and finally washing up along the shores of Lake Victoria uh, in Uganda from late April onward. Uh, but from late April, in the zone where those bodies were being, uh, you know, uh, were floating in the Akagera, um, the Rwanda Patriotic Front controlled that area in the east. And the UN, in May, the UN was receiving or uh, issuing protection cables of the RPF slaughtering Hutu civilians in that area as those Hutu peasants were fleeing into Tanzania. Those reports were harrowing and detailed. So they the UN officials on the ground and the powerful political insiders knew about these massacres, but they buried them. There were no investigations of the, these RPF killings, no public interviews with the Hutu refugees who had fled into Tanzania about their loss of being, being chased and, and, and their loved ones being killed. There were no prosecutions of these crimes at the ICTR, even though those crimes clearly fell within the mandate of, of the ICTR's temporal jurisdiction. So, That's how some of that evidence was ignored. And NGOs and journalists who were in Rwanda at the time, uh, they weren't on the battlefront and they were not present during those massacres. But they afterwards, they were escorted around Rwanda and they were escorted there in that area by the RPF. And they were told that these corpses were Tutsis killed by Hutu extremists. Now, Tutsis were being killed all, all over Rwanda that's for sure. And they, there were likely Tutsis killed in eastern Rwanda uh, in, in early April. Um, but in that area I just described, by late April and by May and June and July, the victims in those areas, uh, which were under RPF control, were, were Hutus. So, um, and there were tens of thousands of them. And there's, there are other reports. I mean, in September, a uh, refugee consultant named Robert Gersony uh, did, uh, and his team did, uh, a, quite a very good investigation in, unfortunately, only one-third of Rwanda's communes uh, uh, of what happened. And, and he concluded in an oral ble- briefing that the RPF committed had committed genocide uh, by committing systematic 
massacres against Hutu civilians. And he did this, he tabled this report for the UN. Now, the UN proceeded to use damage control tactics and it buried it. Uh, Washington did not want the UN to release this publicly. So there's that aspect too. And this is September 1994. The ICTR was also given, I got access to this, extensive lists of 18,000 people, for example, who the RPF killed in Gitarama, uh, that's in the West, after Kagame's troops seized that area. And and this was tabled as evidence with the idea that this would be uh, investigated and, 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 and prosecuted, these crimes. 18,000 names, which I have in hundreds of, 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 of a big document, hundreds of pages. That was never investigated. And so there's, it's, it's an incredible story, the miscarriage of justice. In my book, I look at how the U.S. war crimes uh, ambassador at large, Pierre Prosper, did a deal with the RPF. He ensured that the U.N. special investigations, these are the people who were uh, charged with investigating crimes of the RPF in a clandestine, secret way. He did a deal that allowed the UN to hand over its invest its evidence of RPF crimes to the Rwandan government after the uh, you know in 2003 so it, in a, in other words they let the killers investigate and prosecute themselves it was an illegal deal a huge breach of trust and it showed how the UN tribunal had become an instrument of in, injustice so all that was just uh, you know, this bolstered Kagame and allowed him to uh, continue to destabilize Rwanda, but also the greater region uh, in, in Central Africa, in, in Congo in particular, where millions of people have died. So I think that that is uh, the great tragedy, uh, how the international community, the legacy of the international community, uh, especially the ICTR. Yeah, I mean, what you, what you reveal, um, I'm sure, uh, is um, unexpected by by a lot of readers, and uh, perhaps also unwelcome. Um, and so, I, I wanted to ask you, um, as we you know near the end of our our time together, how has your research? Uh, in praise of blood been received by others. Uh, you mentioned already that you um, repeatedly refer to the genocide of Tutsi in Rwanda. Um, but I, I, I guess I just have a feeling that you have possibly been accused of denying the genocide um, and other forms of criticism. So I, I yeah, um, how has your work been received by others from politicians to civil society to, to scholars? How has it been criticized? And do you think it's succeeding in at least putting, um, raising questions or putting a dent in the official uh, narrative? Well, I think uh, my book has, uh, at the very least, challenged the official narrative or exposed the fraud uh, or the lies behind uh, a good part of the official narrative. So uh, a few people have said I've defeated the official narrative. Now, I it's, it's really not, I'm not able to say whether that's true or not. Um, there's been a sufficient amount of um, 
backlash and vitriol uh, in social media directed at me by trolls and uh, Kigali propagandists. There's been no official reaction from Kigali, and I suspect it's because, I mean, it's been two years that my book, uh, almost two years that the book was released, and I suspect that they know that um, the uh, evidence in it uh, is very tight uh, and can't be challenged. So therein lies the, you know, the, the problem they face. Um, there's been you know, uh, silence uh, and uh, some resistance among mainstream scholars um, because my work um, controverts theirs quite, or at least challenges theirs. Uh, and so I think uh, for a number of people uh, who are interested in protecting their careers, um, they're very uncomfortable with my work. Um, others, and well, there have been some who've called it political. And I, I disagree fundamentally with the accusation that my work is political because they don't understand, if they level that, um, charge. They don't really understand what my work is about because, in fact, the interviews and accounts of uh, stories that I've revealed um, is uh, is something that the Rwandan pol- political opposition in exile doesn't want revealed. Um, a good part of the people in exile. Uh, do not want um, Kagame's crimes exposed, especially f- former people of the regime, people who were civilian cadres and, and officials of the RPF, because they're directly implicated. Um, so th- this, my work um, challenges uh, the politics and upsets the political opposition. Um, so, but I, you know, I've had a lot of encouraging uh, feedback as well from Tutsis and Hutus who are apolitical. Um, they've come to me who have nothing to lose and, and uh, except, you know, many of them are fearful of, of uh, being targeted. But they've told me that my book is the real complete story of what happened. Um, there's been some critical acclaim for my work. I've, I've won some literary awards, but those awards are not as important to me as, as uh, anywhere near as the significant support I've gotten from Rwandans, uh, Tutsis and Hutus, who are free to speak about the history they, they've lived. You know, I know there's a, an updated version of the book coming out in paperback in February 2024. Those who have not read the book or anyone who maybe read the hard copy. Can you give them some insight into um, any of the new uh, material in the paperback version? Well, uh, you know, the paperback version is uh, really just a slightly updated version. There are more substantive um, updates in the chapter on the attack, uh, the plane attack uh, that triggered the genocide. So uh, there's some new material there. And uh, throughout the book, uh, there are updates, but um, it's mainly the same story. Um, really, you know, I, I, I think um, there's, there's not much that will 
you know, surprise anyone in, in the paperback. Although, you know, I've written a story recently uh, that's on the internet uh, after my paperback version went to press uh, that provides new material on uh, the dynamics of violence during the genocide. And that, of course, was released uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, it was an article I did uh, for the French magazine Marianne, um, looking at how the RPF um, was involved in killing Tutsis in Western Rwanda in a place called Bisicero, where thousands of Tutsis were killed. I know you talked a little bit about this uh, when we started our discussion, um, but do you have any advice for others who are considering engaging in the type of investigative journalism that you um, undertake? Um, be very careful. <laughs> um, I think um, y- y- that's, that's a hard one. Um, I, I think uh, that this is, uh, you know, for people um, starting to look at this, I think the, Rwandan, uh, Rwandan issues and Congolese issues uh, are almost like a political minefield. Um, and there is a lot of, and you would be aware of this, Jeff, a lot of polarized opinion about history uh, and uh, continuing uh, crimes that are committed in, in Congo and Rwanda. So there's that. I do think, you know, there's an incredible amount of data mining. Um, there's rich literature out there. Um, and, uh, you know, I I think there's, it's always important as a journalist or as a scholar, as a student, uh, or anyone just interested in the, these issues, human rights and history, to take a step back and forge uh, your own opinion uh, about this. But what what I tell people, uh, whether they're working on these issues or whether they're just trying to educate themselves, um, especially Westerners, but also Africans, is we need to really listen to the people who have fled. Um, there's a country called Congo in the heart of Africa that in many ways has been hijacked by violence and is now, uh, for many people who live it day to day, and I know this because I get updates daily from Congolese living there, there's a military occupation. There, uh, there's, you know, there are criminals uh, within the Congolese army and the Rwandan uh, military elements are active every day, uh, wreaking havoc um, and uh, spread, continuing to spread their violence and terror. So there's, you know, in some ways, this, you know, prison uh, that they live in. Um, also, there's uh, very much a mass surveillance state uh, in Rwanda, uh, and uh, there's violence that we never hear about. Uh, we hear about some of it. But uh, for the most part, we don't hear about the daily struggle and 
the violent, uh, violence and terror that Rwandans live in. So it's very important that people, uh, especially journalists and uh, people who work in governments and in academia, listen to the voices of people who flee. Um, that's not to say that work can't be done in Rwanda and research can't be done, but um, I think now there has to be uh, intensified efforts to um, document in an empirical way uh, the lives of people who have fled, uh, you know, these atrocities and and uh, who have lived through these experiences. Thank you, Judy. Thank you so much. Um, you know, we've taken up a lot of your time, and so um, I do want to you know let you go. But before I do so, uh, is there anything? Is this is this what you're still working on, or are you working on something new that the audience can be watching for? Well, I'm still uh, working on uh, this. I, you know, in some ways, I feel like um, there are so many things we don't understand about uh, violence in in Central Africa, but also uh, the history. Um, as I said, I've directed some of my attention in the last two years. Um, actually many, many months uh, intensively researching uh, the violence against Tutsis, RPF, the RPF's role in that violence. Um, because there has been a lot of literature um, on uh, the uh, attacks in Hutu-controlled zones of Tutsis and what Tutsis suffered. And there's been a lot of evidence that has been tabled at the tribunal. But I'm looking uh, at what uh, we haven't uh, examined before. And so this is, there's a rich amount of material that is shocking. And, you know, I've gotten through to some of it, and it sort of illuminates a whole different um, part of the story. And so I'll continue to do that. But I uh, I don't know how much longer I'm going to work on it. I think this is going to be material that um, Rwandans themselves are going to take up from what I hear. So, uh, you know, in a few years, I might be doing something completely different. But this is what I'm working on right now. Great. Well, thank you. And thank you for uh, the work you do. Um, as again, the paperback comes out February 2020, uh, you know, in next month. And uh, so thank you, Judy, and uh, take care and good luck with your work. Thank you, Jeff. Um, I appreciate you reaching out.